This is The Guardian. Today, the dream of owning your own home and the reality of the housing crisis. In the late 70s, Helen and her husband were at college in Leicester. They were getting by on student loans and they had a baby to look after too. So when they were offered a council house with cheap rent, they grasped the chance. How much rent had you been paying? Uh, £6 a week, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Which was brilliant. I mean, that having that house given to us at that stage meant that we could both continue at college In 1980, a few years after they moved in, the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, announced a new housing scheme called Right to Buy. This policy would allow people who lived in council houses, like Helen, to buy their homes at a discount. I can remember it being a big new thing and and great opportunities for people who wouldn't normally be able to get onto the property ladder. And this idea of owning your own home was, was promoted as be all and end all, really. This was one of Thatcher's flagship policies. She said she dreamed of a property-owning democracy where everybody would be able to own their own homes if they worked hard enough. So we took it up and bought the property and we then went on to sell it in about 84. So we only owned it for probably three years before we sold it on because our circumstances were improving and we were able to buy a bigger house for our growing family. And understanding the situation better now, we probably shouldn't have bought it. Why do you say that? Well, because it was taking it out of social housing. Most of the houses that were sold as part of the right to buy scheme weren't replaced. When Helen bought hers, there were around 6.5 million council homes. Today, there are only 2.2 million. And for a lot of people who are in their 20s and 30s now, Thatcher's vision for a Britain of proud homeowners seems like a fantasy. I'm Rachel, I am in London and Helen is my mum. Rachel, who works as a manager for a homelessness charity, is renting a room in a house share. To own in London without a large chunk of deposit, which I don't have enough of, is very much a distant dream. Obviously, there are schemes which I have looked into, such as shared ownership and and the help to buy scheme, but I think they also don't feel that affordable. How do you feel when you hear your mum talking about being able to use the right to buy scheme in the 80s? I mean, I think it was a very different world. People obviously got a lot of opportunities and support to improve their position. You know, although it has benefited a lot of people, it's also created a the reasons why we're now in in a terrible housing crisis. Helen knows her daughter probably won't ever have access to affordable housing in the way that she and her husband did. Does it make you feel angry? Well, yes, it does make me feel angry because it shouldn't be like this and it should be a right, really. Over decades, successive Tory and Labour governments have promised to build hundreds of thousands of new affordable homes, but they've never reached their targets. 
Then last month, Boris Johnson announced that he wanted to extend the right to buy to people who live in properties owned by housing associations. Of course, he's unlikely to make good on that promise now. So what should the new Prime Minister do to help people who are struggling to afford a decent place to live? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, how right to buy helped to create the British housing crisis. Lindsay Hanley, you've written for The Guardian about the history of the right to buy scheme. What was the original idea behind it? Well, it it was sort of a masterstroke by Thatcher, really, for better or worse. The thing is, is is the idea of right to buy had been sort of gathering steam on both the Labour and the Tory sides. There'd been a sort of thread of it going through their manifestos all the way since the mid-50s. Given a cup of tea by the lucky family now in possession, Mr Macmillan drinks to their future happiness before getting on with the job of building and planning more houses. The new slogan, quicker you build, more you get, is a good one for all those many families whose great desire is a home of their own. Uh, You know, Harold Macmillan wanted the property-owning democracy, and it was always viewed by the Tories. Council housing was always viewed as a stepping stone rather than as an endpoint you know, in your housing trajectory. So if you had a council tenancy, you know, it was too reliant on the state and that your ultimate goal should always be property ownership. Labour under the Callaghan government in the, up to 1979 in the late 70s, had developed a really sort of ready to launch programme of the right to buy. And when Thatcher came in in, in 79, it was like a sort of weaponization of absolutely everything that she believed in. Anyone who wants to own his own home can expect help from a Conservative government. We know what that help will cost. You know, which was small C, conservatism, a sort of petty bourgeois, I have my house, I have my car, I have my garden, sort of thing. You know, an idea that people who rented from the council for 20 years, they've sort of paid more than the value of the house in rent over that number of years. She felt that it should have some kind of reward. It was essentially a reward for respectability. A nation of homeowners will be self-reliant, independent and able to do what they want with their own lives, in their own homes. And then she comes along and says, you know, not only can your council home be your castle, it can be the place where the wife and mother can, you know, make the changes she wants to make to her, you know, to her her own home rather than being beholden to council rules and so on. So it's extremely small state. I mean, it was privatisation, one house at a time. It's so interesting to think that the history of it goes so far back because I think in the common imagination, it is absolutely indelibly tied with Thatcher. Yeah, well, I think it's because there was a short period, I think, when it was first launched in 1980, it, it was slow to take off. I think people were kind of suspicious of it, particularly people in the north of England who lived on estates uh, that were closely associated with industry, where there was a lot of trade unionism. You know, there were sort of real quite tortured discussions over, do we take this up or not? You know, it could divide our communities or, you know, we're just against it anyway because we hate the Tories. But there was a TV advertising campaign. There are nearly five million council tenants in England and Wales, many with families like yours. They go on paying rent every week. 
But if you've been a council tenant for two years or more, you now have the legal right to buy your house or flat. Discounts range from 32% to 60%. You can decide whether to turn your home into your house. And then all of a sudden, in around 1982, it just became a phenomenon. Mr Speaker, as the Honourable Gentleman is very well aware, we put through a policy of purchasing council houses by their tenants. It has been a very good bargain for all who have partaken of the opportunity they've had from this government. Even people who were ideologically opposed to it sort of started to think, well, you know, the horse has bolted now. We may as well, we may as well do it ourselves. Everybody else is doing it. But a lot of people did make use of the scheme. Oh, yeah. How many people was it? Throughout the 80s, Kauzai House sales were running at about 150,000 a year. And now it's getting on for two and a half million altogether. Right. Out of a stock that was in 1979, I think six and a half million. So two and a half million have been sold under the right to buy, leaving, you know, four, four and a half million council homes, a lot of which, you know, under the new Labour period, were sort of kind of semi-forcibly transferred over to housing associations. Lindsay, how did the policy change over the years? You know, as successive governments came in, what did they do with that policy? Well, really, all that happened was that the discount got bigger and bigger. The discounts were initially 35%, then they were extended to 50 And then under David Cameron were increased to 70% without, of course, building extra council housing to compensate for the council housing that was being lost. Mm. And that's the ideological aspect of it, which is that the Tories designed the policy to reduce the amount of council housing available. But then... When uh, the governments of Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland were devolved, uh, Scotland and then Wales both put a sort of moratorium on the right to buy altogether. The bill is about improving housing across all tenures. It will help us to deliver better outcomes for communities and support improved quality across all sectors of housing. They view it as being as a sort of chief contributor to the unaffordability of housing particularly for people on, you know, low incomes. Lindsay, since Right to Buy was introduced in 1980, how big an impact has it had on how many houses have been available in the UK? I think the most significant impact of the Right to Buy right now is seen in the fact that there are now a lot of people who a generation or two ago would certainly have qualified for council housing and depending on where they lived probably wouldn't have found it too difficult to find a council house that they were reasonably satisfied with. Those people are now renting privately, usually from buy-to-let landlords, homes that once would have been council houses So you have people living on council estates next to council tenants who might be paying, you know, three or four hundred pounds a month, which is secure and, you know, entitles you to a certain amount of uh, maintenance and refurbishment. The other neighbours will be renting privately a house that was once a council house. So they're identical houses, but are paying something like eight or nine hundred pounds a month for an identical house. So some people have 
really managed to make a good amount of money from using right to buy in the 80s and becoming private landlords or selling on for for a big profit to private landlords. Yes, exactly. I mean, the the situation we have now is that 40% of all housing bought under the right to buy is now in the private sector. Um, In Milton Keynes, 70.9% of all right to buy housing is now private. Wow. It's an extraordinary amount. Over the past 40 years then, what other factors have compounded that lack of access to housing for people? I think there's been a mixture of things really that you know there's an aging population the average size of households has got smaller because you have a lot more couples splitting up and each needing a home you have a lot more people living on their own anyway and in 1979 there was technically there was a surplus of housing in Britain there was more than enough housing for everybody and now there isn't In the 50s, Vicky Spratt's grandparents were offered a council house in South London. My granddad, bless him, when I was a teenager and like when I'd come home from university in my early 20s, he always made a point of like driving me past that flat and being like, you wouldn't have anything you have if it wasn't for this flat. Um, and it really stuck with me because it was obviously such an important place for him. That flat completely changed their lives and like changed the way that our family was able to move forwards. And they see it as a real stepping stone, you know, out of hardship. If your grandparents were looking for a house in South London now with the same circumstances they had back then, would they be able to do that? No. (laughs) Is the short answer. (laughs) Um, they, like so many people right now, would find themselves on a waiting list. Vicky, you're the housing correspondent for the I newspaper, and you've also written a book called Tenants, for which you've spent years speaking to people who are basically at the mercy of the private rental system. Why is it that you feel so passionate about housing? Well, I think the answer is really, really simple. If you don't have a safe, secure and affordable home, you can't do anything else in your life. Nothing will function if your home is putting you into debt because it's too expensive, if it's unsafe because it's covered in mould, which is making you physically and mentally unwell. I think somewhere along the line over the last few decades, we've really, as a country, lost sight of just how fundamental and foundational housing really is for everything else that we do. A 14-year wait for social housing might seem excessive, but Georgina is far from unique. The housing charity Shelter says more than a quarter of those on the waiting list have been stuck there for five years or longer. That waiting list now runs at more than a million people. All over the country, we've got huge, huge, huge waits for social housing and under real shortage. And it's why we've got so many people in temporary accommodation, which means as fast as people are becoming homeless mm. or in need of social housing, they're not being rehoused at the same rate, right? Like the, the waiting list doesn't go down. So what's your situation been with housing? Well, I have experienced the sharp end of private renting um, in London, like so many people have. When I graduated, I moved into all sorts of dodgy flats, 
based on what I could afford. You know, I lived in box rooms. There was like one particular flat. And um, the rent was about £500 a month, which back then was was like as cheap as you could really get in, in London without going really, really far out. But it was um, it was a room that had actually been divided into two rooms. And I remember that it, it basically only fit my bed in it. And the bed like touched touched both walls. I mean, I say all of this with an awareness that there are so many people living in far worse situations. Um, and then after that, I think a really, really defining moment was I was moving house with my then partner. And we had to pay almost £3,000 up front for this flat that we were trying to move into together. And that was rent up front, deposit and letting fees. And I was so incensed about these letting fees, which were the most expensive I had ever paid. And what were they charging you for? Well, this is it. Just admin. This is it. So I then went back to them and did the sort of like very annoying journalist thing. I was like, excuse me, could you please give me a complete breakdown of what this figure is for? And like basically show me the receipts. And they couldn't do it. That's actually when I got really interested in in tenants' rights in a meaningful way. And then I realised that letting fees had been banned in Scotland since 2012. So this would have been around 2015, 2016. And from there, the publication I worked for at the time wanted to do some kind of editorial campaign. And we ended up doing a campaign to get letting fees banned. Now, the Tenant Fees Act comes into force today, potentially saving renters in England hundreds of pounds. The Tenant Fees Act came into force in 2019. And so that, that, was, a really, that was a really big moment. So it's now illegal to charge people for looking around a property, setting up a tenancy, or when to check out. The landlords are great. I think everyone knows at least one person, but probably multiple, who are paying an extraordinary amount to rent in terrible conditions. What are some of the worst things that you've heard about? The worst things I've seen, and I think where we should be really, really, really focusing our concern, are HMOs. So it's a house in multiple occupation. So this is a house where I think it's more than three people who are not related live together and share facilities and a landlord is supposed to license that property now if you've ever lived in a shared house like right now if you're in one it it will have to be a licensed HMO lots of landlords don't bother getting those licenses but the ones that are really really bad Mm -hmm. and unlicensed are multiple people sleeping in rooms sharing sharing one bathroom just coming inside this small two and a half bedroom house it's a familiar story it's been converted into six separate bedsits and crucially for each of these small units a private landlord is making 983 pounds a month in rent and often if they're unlicensed there is no real contract landlords chuck people out when they fall behind on rent or if they get sick and they can't work and they can't pay and then um, the rogue landlords operating these shared houses and, and making fair whack but they're not treating people properly and often people don't know what their rights are as tenants right especially if you're in an hmo you might not realize that there are minimum requirements about how many bathrooms there should be per person how many people there should be in each room but beyond that if you can't afford to move then you have no option yeah they know that if they complain or they they leave, they might not actually be able to find anything 
in the right place that they can afford. So I think that's why so many renters put up with really, really dire conditions. And I think the government, whatever whatever form it's still still intact in, have been trying to do something about this. So like Michael Gove took over as Secretary of State for Housing at the end of 2021. And in that time, he did a lot um, before he was he was sacked. And and one of the things he did was publish a, a white paper on renters reform that would have, and ho- hopefully it still will, I mean, let's see what happens, kind of rebalance the power between landlords and their tenants by reinforcing renters' rights. So getting rid of Section 21 evictions, getting rid of rent rise clauses in contracts, which mean that landlords can put the rent up, and bringing something called the decent home standard into private renting as a legal requirement. So if that happens, what it will mean is that landlords are legally compelled to make sure that homes are not mouldy, not damp, not full of electrical faults, um, not full of leaks. I mean, quite basic stuff that actually I see all the time that they don't do. Can you explain what a Section 21 eviction is? Yeah, so Section 21 of the 1988 Housing Act is a mechanism through which a landlord can evict their tenant with just two months' notice, without ever having to give them a reason. It's a leading cause of homelessness and obviously causes great instability. It's different in Scotland. It's much, much, much harder for landlords to to get rid of tenants. They, They still can, but the system is completely different and tenants basically have their tenancy for as long as they want it. Vicky, for people who are lucky enough right now to leave renting and start the process of buying their own home, there are a couple of problems. Not only that house prices are so high, but also that inflation is. I think we should be very worried about what rising inflation and interest rates mean for people who have really, really leveraged themselves to buy houses at a time when house price inflation is at an all-time high, like let's just pause on that for a moment, homes are more expensive than they have ever been and people are getting into more and more debt to buy them. And as we're seeing right now, when things shift economically and people are under more stress, that could potentially cause problems. Um, Before he lost his job, Boris Johnson was talking a lot about... um, how we're going to create more homeowners. And one of his big ideas was 50-year mortgages. I can announce a comprehensive review of the mortgage market. Reporting back this autumn, it will look at how we can give our nation of aspiring homeowners better access to low-deposit mortgages and what our own mortgage industry can learn from counterparts around the world who have alternative ways of offering finance, managing risk and unbolting the door to ownership. So like in Japan, for instance, you can actually get like a 90 year mortgage and they're passed down through families. So you basically inherit the debt because houses are so expensive. Because what I think we might see in the future is that home ownership actually looks a hell of a lot more like renting from the bank because you're effectively taking on more debt for longer to prop up these really, really wildly high house prices that have outpaced wages. So the real winners there are the banks. So that's a real marker of a generational shift, isn't it? Whereas perhaps our parents' generation would take on a mortgage and expect that in the early years of their retirement, they would have paid that off. Whereas we will almost certainly be looking at paying all the way through our retirement if we're lucky enough to get a mortgage. Yeah, I think you've just touched on something 
really important that obviously I would say this as a housing journalist, but like, I don't think people realize what's happening. <laughs> it's, it's a really, really, really big change. If house prices stay where they are, historically high, above wages, then retirement is going to look very different. And this sort of British dream that has become aspirational over the last few decades, which is like, buy a house, maybe make loads of money on it, maybe flip it, um, retire and have all this all this cash in the bank because you paid off your mortgage, is not going to be achievable. Coming up, in the last few weeks, the idea of right to buy has had a political comeback. What should our next Prime Minister do to try and solve the housing crisis? Lindsay, a few weeks ago, Boris Johnson proposed that right to buy should be expanded to housing associations, which are not-for-profit organisations that maintain a lot of the old council housing stock. I want us to deliver on the long-standing commitment made by several governments to extend the right to buy to housing associations. That's not actually a new policy idea. David Cameron had tried to do the same thing during his term in office. So I can tell you, the next Conservative government will extend the right to buy to all housing association tenants in our country. It's difficult to see how this policy would actually work because... With the original right-to-buy scheme, the government was selling off properties it owned, whereas Johnson's proposal is to convince housing associations to sell off the properties they own. You know, the government doesn't actually have control. No, I think that is one of the points. Uh, you know, I mean, I know that uh, Polly Neat, the chief executive of Shelter, has described that policy is baffling and unworkable. Uh, and I think the National Housing Federation itself has said, you know, we don't actually know how this is going to be possible to implement. And I think there's a reason for that. Boris Johnson and his advisors, in their infinite wisdom, want, again, wanted to get a headline with the <laughs> phrase right to buy in it rather than we will build new council housing. I mean, every politician vying for power now comes in with this promise that they'll build X number, you know, hundreds of thousands of new affordable houses. How many council houses did you build last year? Well, we built a significant number and what I do What's know... What's that number? I don't have the exact number, Andrew, Okay, but I we do. we built more than the last Labour government... Yeah, but the last Labour government hardly built any. ...during its entire period in office. You, you built 2,640. Why did they never manage to achieve that? There's a lot of reasons, really. I mean, there's... You know, local authorities are completely stymied by, you know, lack of funds, lack of autonomy. They can't go ahead and build 10,000 new homes because they, they can't afford to and don't really have the power to. Lindsay, we spoke to Helen and to several other people while we were making this episode about their decision to buy their council homes. And some of them said that they felt guilty for having done that. What do you think? I don't think individual people can be, you know, sort of blamed or have the finger pointed at them for exercising the right to buy. So people buying in the 80s or 90s, there's no way they could have envisaged that their children would be in real terms, possibly on lower wages than them. 
you know, all these things, they're all avoidable situations and they're not ones created by the individuals themselves. You know, they're created by governments making specific decisions. Vicky, a lot of people in this country can't consider buying. They'll keep renting long term. And, you know, for some people that can work, but it's clear that the rental system in the UK could be improved. You've been looking at examples in other countries. What would you say are some of the lessons that we could learn from them? There is no renter's utopia on this planet, as far as I'm aware. But I do think some have a slightly different attitude. In Germany, in their constitution, it says that if you own property, you must use it for public good. Now, of course, they still have bad landlords in Germany, but I think because that is in their constitution, it's kind of in their national psyche. So if you rent your home, you're very likely to, to rent it for a really, really long time. Um, and landlords don't generally kick people out and put up the rent as, as easily as they do here. Because since the 80s, since Thatcher's government, since those reforms, I do think the balance of power has been skewed towards landlords And there's been this sort of like mentality that it's a landlord's right to do X, Y, and Z. Well, I think that's why we need to reframe it and and say, what are we actually talking about when we talk about landlords? Like they're housing providers. They might think they're investors, but they're housing providers. Well, it's understandable that landlords need the right to evict tenants who are damaging their property or who are consistently failing to pay the rent. But it sounds like... In your opinion, the balance has swayed too far in favour of landlords. I find this argument really interesting about landlords needing to get rid of tenants. And there are examples of difficult tenants, of course. But where I've landed on it, having you know travelled the country, is, well, are private individuals best placed to house people with complex needs? no they're not because they're not social workers they're not councils they don't have the resources and this is the problem right with private individuals often just like one or two investment properties which they have bought because they want to make money on them and they think that it will be reasonably easy are actually you know they're, they're providing housing it comes with lots of obligations and responsibilities and this argument that landlords will need to get rid of difficult tenants well If someone's got addiction issues or they're going through a mental health crisis or whatever and damage is being done to the property, should a landlord just be able to turn them out onto the street? I'm not sure. Lindsay, for you, what do you think housing should be? You know, is it a right? Should we expect to be able to buy our own homes? I think think absolutely housing is a right, whether you have the right to own it is is a different matter, I think. I think my ideal situation is the situation that Bevan envisaged because he, he was the health minister establishing the NHS at the same time as being the housing minister, you know, with an idea in his mind of, of establishing a parallel housing service to match the quality and the universality of the NHS, you know, when you think that the NHS, whatever shape or form, you know, has survived 
up till today, you know, it's an essentially socialist institution in the sense that it's for everybody, it's used by everybody, and it's free at the point of use. If we could re-establish that principle with housing in the way that Bevan envisaged it, you know, which basically was building council housing so good, of such good quality, in such attractive neighbourhoods with plenty of resources and amenities, that the desire to own property would over time become irrelevant. That's the situation I'd like to see. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Lindsay Hanley and before her, Vicky Spratt, whose book Tenants is out now. Thanks as well to Helen and Rachel for chatting to us for today's episode, which was produced by Tom Glasser and Alex Atak. Sound design was by Axel Cucoutier. Our executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>